Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon, and thanks for listening. With Election Day just around the corner, today we are talking about women in leadership and the importance of voting. I'm going to start by giving you some numbers to frame our conversation. I found these stats recently in an article on Huffington Post titled, The Lack of Women Leaders is a National Emergency, by Emily Peck. I recommend reading it if you have the chance. So here we go. Men hold nearly 81% of seats in Congress. Three-quarters of state legislators are men. They make up the majority of mayors and governors. And 83% of elected prosecutors and 88% of police officers are men. Then, if we look into the private sector, of the 500 chief executives at Fortune 500 companies, only 32 are women. While it isn't surprising that conservative outlets like Fox News and the current White House are largely run by men, it's a bit alarming that the industries and companies that we consider liberal are also run by men, including the entertainment world, the news media, and the tech world. And even in fields dominated by women, men are still in leadership roles. For example, women make up the majority of teachers and school principals, yet fewer than 25% of school superintendents are female. So as they say, it's a man's world. But we are slowly making change and progress. And here with me today is someone that's part of that change, Sarah Nichols. Counselor Sarah Nichols is 27, currently serves on the Bangor City Council. After successfully completing the Emerge Maine training program for Democratic women candidates, Sarah was elected for the first time to public office after winning a seven-way citywide race in November of 2015. She was born and raised in Bangor and studied new media at the University of Maine, and she currently works for three feminist organizations, the Maine Women's Lobby, Hardy Girls Healthy Women, and Mabel Wadsworth Center. Additionally, Sarah currently serves on the Emerge Maine Board of Directors, and when she isn't working to make the life of women and girls better, you will find her cross-country skiing, hiking, traveling abroad, or enjoying beer at her favorite local bar, in downtown Bangor, Nocturnum Draft House. She's going to talk about why she ran for office, what it's like being the only woman on the Bangor City Council, and she offers advice for other women who want to run. After my chat with Counselor Nichols, one of our current interns, Megan Frizard, from the University of Maine, will be joining me to talk about when, how, and why to vote this year. And be sure to stick around until the end for our Ask Mabel segment. 
Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thanks for being on the show with me. I'm oh, happy to. So let's start at the beginning. Why did you decide to run for city council? So it kind of goes back a few years. I grew up in Bangor, but I left college and I had this weird year gap where I was working at an outdoor gear store and not feeling very productive. Like I was paying my bills, but I had to live at home and it was a struggle. If I wasn't living with my parents, I definitely would have been not making things work. (laughs) But I found out I was losing my job and I needed to find a different one fast. And I almost actually moved to West Virginia for a job. About a month before I was supposed to leave, a job posting came up at St. Joe's and I applied through um, persuasion of my friend Mike Scott. And either way, I got the job and all of a sudden I was stable and I had this great career. I had my own place that I was paying for on my own. Like everything all of a sudden was fine and I'm 23 and most people my age at that time were not doing as well as I was. And I felt because of that, I felt like I wanted to do more. And so I reached out to my boss who had run for the legislature. She had served four terms in the house in the nineties and we talked about it and she got so excited that she immediately called city hall and tried to figure out who was running that year. I did not run that year, but the reason that was driving that was not just because of how I was struggling for the year before and not struggling as much as some, I do realize that, but also other things that go along with that. And a big part of my messaging was about the bus and public transportation and how much that really affected people from getting to and from work or actually being able to afford to have a job because they could get to work. And Bangor still isn't perfect on that, but we actually have a plan to get to extended hours, which we didn't before I ran. So that was, it's pretty exciting. What is it like to be um, the only woman on city council currently and one of the youngest members? Are you the youngest member? I'm the youngest. I wasn't when we started. Josh Plourd was the youngest at the time. But now I am. The young part, I don't really see so much because I'm kind of old on the inside. I kind of call myself an old lady at heart. So I don't see that so much personally. I could see it affecting others. But with the male to female thing, that can be challenging. I have definitely noticed many times, more so in the last year than the previous year, that my, if I wasn't there, I feel that the direction of the conversation would have gone very differently because on various issues, not necessarily on purpose. I don't think anyone in the room was is ever neglecting what women's needs are. I don't. I never really got that vibe so much. But it wasn't even like their initial thought when it came to policy. Like, how is this going to affect other communities in Bangor? And I definitely know if I wasn't there, maybe some things would have moved forward. That probably should have been looked at differently, etc. Why do you think it's important for women to run for office, for women to be in leadership? Well, for kind of the reasons I just said, that that is the main reason. If we're not there, then a lot of issues that help everyone in the community are not going to be necessarily the immediate thought because we are the 
we are generally not, I'm not saying men can't be compassionate and can't be caregivers, but generally that is a more feminine role. And being the type of person that has, that usually is juggling all those hats really does make you an effective lawmaker because you are constantly looking at everything from every side. And so I find that really exciting when women are in the room. It makes it really interesting because with staff at Bank at City Hall, I mean, we have a female city manager, finance director. There's a lot of female department heads, which definitely help that conversation, but they are not the face of the community. And do you see this as a um, sexual and reproductive health care issue since this is reproductive left? Yeah, I do. I I think, I mean, not, I mean, yes, it's an issue on city level, but we don't usually make those specific policies. But even when I was talking about the bus system, that having access to an extended bus system makes sure you, makes it so anyone can get to the health care they need, which right now, or any of those, anything that affects them personally to make sure they are able to have a balanced life with work, health care, and being able to get to all those places. So on a city level it does, but not necessarily directly. But I also work at the Maine Women's Lobby in Augusta, and we're working on issues that have to do with paid family leave. And Representative Herbig is our sponsor. And the work that is done at the State House, I find very clearly a reproductive issue because if she was not there, a lot of the women in the State House weren't there. I don't, I mean, Senator Volk is also a co sponsor, so it is definitely a bipartisan issue. But making sure that women are have the ability to have the seat at the table is a reproductive issue because if we weren't able to access um, being able to care for our families or just any medical issue or just have birth control so we can kind of time how we want to have run our lives then we can serve in leadership and then make sure that everyone is treated equally and fairly. So what do you think needs to be done to get more women um, running for office? So I was just looking at the statistics. About 20% of Congress um, are women, which is far too low. (laughs) What do you think needs to change? First thing, ask them. Statistically, women need to be asked three times before they even think about running. A man, it's once. Women tend to think a lot longer how this is going to affect their whole life, how it's going to affect their work, their families. So making it easier to for them to serve, I think, is and asking them and showing that, or at least conveying that, no, you are actually completely qualified to do this, and I think is the biggest step. Uh, but it's also supporting organizations that teach women and how to run so they have that supportive network beyond just the ask. Do you have any specific advice for women um, after running your own campaign? With running, I mean, make sure you have a supportive team. It doesn't have to be family. I mean, I'm single, so I don't necessarily... I mean, yes, I have extended family, my parents, but I'm not a caregiver for anyone. But you still need a supportive network to make sure you get across the finish line. So... Find those people. They are crucial to winning <laughs> and also keeping your sanity. Um, beyond that, just serving. I 
I t- <laughs> there are a couple things. One, learn how to breathe deeply because there's going to be a lot of stressful times where you feel that your voice isn't heard or it is heard, but it's not necessarily being taken seriously. So, or you just hear something crazy, but you have to try not to react to every little thing. So breathing deeply is a very good tactic I have learned. Um, The other is compromise is okay. Actually, most women are, that's why we make good lawmakers. We're really good at compromise. And, but compromise, it doesn't mean you're selling out on your values. So I always, I say this a lot and I feel like you can't say it enough. You, you can compromise without compromising your values. And that is an important thing you have to know where you're, when you're going into the room each day to make these decisions, know where your line is and what is too far and what you think is wrong. But it's okay to go up to that line because the others are, are also having to do the same thing. And that's not a bad thing, if anything, that's positive because we're finding common ground. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. That was Bangor City Councilor Sarah Nichols discussing the importance of women in leadership. Up next, Mabel Wadsworth Center's intern Megan Frizzard from the University of Maine will be joining me to discuss when, how, and why to vote this year. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being on the show with me. Thanks for having me. So the election is coming right up. So the first question I'm wondering for our listeners is when, where, and how can folks vote? So the election is Tuesday, November 7th, which is coming right up. Um, And where and when depends on where you live. Um, I live and vote in Orono, and so we vote at the Memorial Gym on the Human Campus, and it starts at 7 a.m. for us there. And so you can check on the main website, on the government website, and see where you're supposed to go for your town. And if someone's not registered to vote, how can they go about registering? You can register the day of the election at the polling location, which is really cool, makes it really easy. Um, you can also register leading up to the election at your town office. Um, all you need is something to prove that you're a U.S. citizen, whether that's a passport or a birth certificate, and something to prove your residency in the town that you're voting in. So if you have, like, an electric bill or a piece of mail, um, a lease, something like that. Now, if somebody is really busy on the, on the 7th, can they still vote? Yep. You can get an absentee ballot from your town office, and you can vote. You can do it right there in the office any day up to and through the election. Um, you can also request one online. Um, might be too late for that now, actually, but you can um, you can get an absentee ballot from your town office and fill it out there and do it there. Great. And why why should someone vote this year? Um, there isn't any representatives. It's not a um, no. There's not a governor running. There's mm-hmm. not a presidential election. So, commonly, people don't vote as often in these elections. Why do you think people should get out and vote? 
I think it's important to get out and vote in these elections because these questions are really important and they'll affect a lot of people. Um, question two, like we've been talking about, is the Medicaid expansion question, and it'll help thousands of people get on health insurance, it'll create thousands of jobs, it'll um, help improve access to health care for so many people, so it's definitely very, very important. And why are you going to vote? I'm going to vote because of all of those reasons that I just said, and I think it's important and it's part of our civil duty, I suppose, living here. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Welcome, Terry, to Ask Mabel. Thank you for being here with us again, as always. Thanks for having me, Abby, as always. Today's questions are going to be about vaginismus. About two in a thousand women report um, symptoms of vaginismus, yet a lot of people don't know much about it. Additionally, we know that this condition is very underreported due to oftentimes embarrassment or shame, which is why we're going to spend some time today talking about it. So can you just start by telling us what vaginismus is, what are the symptoms, and um, what symptoms cause it? Thanks, Abby. I I agree with you. I think this is a very um, infrequently talked about condition, and I definitely agree that it's it's underreported. Um, vaginismus is a condition that can make sexual intercourse, uh, a gynecological exam, and even putting in a tampon a very painful experience uh, for the woman, if not an impossible uh, experience for her. Uh, this pain occurs with the insertion of an object such as a tampon, a penis, sex toy, speculum uh, into the vagina. The pain is caused by the involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles, uh, specifically the pubococcygeus or PC uh, muscle group, uh, leading to a generalized muscle spasm and even a temporary sensation of breathing. So women will hold their breath uh, in response to uh, this discomfort. Uh, The PC muscle group is involved with urination, intercourse, orgasm, bowel movements, and childbirth. The pain associated with vaginismus can be mild, but it may be extremely uh, severe in nature. And there are really four types of vaginismus. There's primary vaginismus, which is a life time uh, condition in which the pain has always been present with any uh, attempt to uh, penetrate vaginally. There's secondary vaginismus, which occurs after what has been a history of a normal uh, sexual uh, function and has not always been present. There's global vaginismus, which is present in all situations of vaginal penetration, regardless of what the object is. And then there's situational uh, vaginismus, which is present only in certain situations, like with sexual intercourse, but not necessarily with her gynecologic exam. And she may be able to insert tampons without any problem at all. Uh, The incidence of vaginosis, about 18% are um, 
cases reported in women under the age of 25. And that number in that group may actually be quite a bit higher. Um, but it, you know, it's not reported, it's not necessarily understood by the clinicians. And so the information isn't even elicited. So this probably in that age group is a much higher rate. Uh, 53% of um, clients with this complaint are between the ages of 26 and 35. 26% are between the ages of 36 and 50. And about 9% are women um, over the age of 51. Symptoms of vaginosis are pain with intercourse, which some women will describe as a burning or a stinging or a tightness that causes pain. Um, penetration is difficult or impossible. Long-term pain with uh, sex with or without a known cause. Also, symptoms of pain with uh, tampon insertion, pain with a GYN exam, like you're there for your uh, pap test, or generalized muscle spasms uh, or breathing sensation um, when intercourse is attempted. Um, once triggered, the involuntary muscle tightness occurs without conscious direction. In other words, the woman has not intentionally caused or directed her body to tighten and cannot simply make it stop. Uh, women with vaginismus may initially be sexually responsive and deeply desire to have sex, but over time, uh, this desire may diminish due to their pain and feelings of failure and discouragement. It's extremely frustrating uh, to be unable to physically engage in pleasurable sexual intercourse. Causes of vaginismus may be both physical and non-physical. Uh, and sometimes there may be no identifiable cause at all. And that's, I think, where some women find themselves really stuck and stop talking about it, stop even you know, speaking to their practitioner mm -hmm. about what's been going on because they've either felt invalidated or they felt like they've walked down a path that had no end. Um, the physical causes may be something as simple as a urinary tract infection or a vaginal yeast infection. And in that case, once it was diagnosed and treated, you know, perhaps the um, pain will resolve. But other uh, longer-term issues may be disease conditions such as a cancer or lichen sclerosis, which is a chronic uh, vulvar irritation, which we see more in women over the age of 30. Uh, childbirth can be a factor in um, vaginismus. Menopause, uh, with its resultant um, changes in the vaginal um, integrity, can be a factor. Uh, pelvic surgery, inadequate foreplay resulting in an inadequate sexual response cycle, uh, decreasing vaginal lubrication, and some medications may have uh, side effects that uh, create a lot of vaginal uh, dryness. There can also be non-physical uh, causes like fear, uh, fear of the pain, fear of pregnancy. Uh, anxiety may be an issue, performance anxiety or guilt. Uh, issues with uh, a sexual partner may be a factor, like if they have been in an abusive relationship with this partner or have felt really coerced. They feel very vulnerable, and that, that certainly can come into play. Traumatic life events that the woman may have experienced, like a sexual assault or a history of um, abuse. 
childhood experience, like a lot of negative messages about sex when you were growing up, or perhaps exposure to sexual imagery that you weren't prepared to handle at a young age. Many people, both men and women, are affected by sexual dysfunction, Abby. It is not something that is an individual's fault, um, nor is it something to be ashamed of. Uh, In the majority of cases, it can be resolved successfully. How is vaginismus diagnosed? You know, there's where some trouble can come up, you know, because it can be a very complicated um, situation to um, assess. And it can involve one or more specialties. Um, It might involve um, a physical therapist, a sex therapist, um, some psychological support and counseling, as well as the gynecologist. Um, A physical exam should definitely be performed, um, including a medical history and a pelvic exam, because you want to make sure that there are no underlying um, conditions that might be causing the pain. And if that's the case and they can be treated, you can have a pretty quick resolution um, of the symptom. Commonly, this will take some time and it's kind of diagnosed as a process of elimination. Uh, Treatments. you know, people have asked about, well, what about surgery? What if I change the um, anatomy of the vagina? And actually, surgery will not cure uh, vaginismus and may even worsen the condition. But then again, not treating the condition at all can cause it to worsen, leading to a longer duration uh, of increased intensity with the PC um, muscle contractions. The good news, though, is that almost 100% of women dealing with vaginismus can come to a place of cure. Treatment typically includes a combination of approaches. Usually we will recommend that the woman um, do some work with Kegels exercises to improve the control of her PC muscle group. Um, and physical therapists can be really instrumental in helping her to um, accomplish that. Um, so there might be a referral to a physical a physical therapist. Um, also, there might be a recommendation to do some supervised um, dilation training where the client works with plastic dilators of graduated sizes to decrease her sensitivity to penetration. Uh, education and counseling, you know, sharing information um, about sexual anatomy and sexual response um, cycle helps the client to understand their pain and the process their body is going through. Also, emotional um, exercises allowing the client to identify and express and hopefully resolve uh, any emotional factors that may be uh, contributing to her vaginismus. The time it takes for vaginismus to be successfully treated will vary depending on the individual. The, sp- the first step, of course, um, if you have symptoms, you know, is to speak to your health care provider for evaluation. Um, you should be with the right, with the right education and support, uh, be able to stop this cycle of pain associated with vaginismus. The goal of treatment is full pain-free intercourse and pleasure restoration. Um, there's a wonderful resource, and I really do um, recommend that women um, allow themselves that opportunity to access vaginismus.com's website. Incredible information there and a lot of products that may be helpful in her work towards um, resolving the vaginismus. Great. Thank you, Terry. Um, You've been so helpful answering these questions around vaginismus. Thank you so much.
That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, visit our new and improved website, mabelwadsworth.org, and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on WERU.org in the archives or at MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. Tune in next month at our new time, the first Wednesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or at WERU.org.